Welcome to A Creative Affair, and you're here today with Len Metcalf, Bree Stockwell, and today's guest is Alistair Benn, and uh, uh, we're so excited to have you here, Alistair. Um, we've been mates for quite a quite a while now, and I've always loved our conversations, and uh, I'm so excited to take it further with you today, and also uh, to have my wonderful creative affair partner, Bree, with us to also extend this wonderful conversation about creativity. How are you today, mate? Doing very well. Thank you very much. We're, we're time zone juggling uh, <laughs> at the moment. Um, I, I think it's early morning for you, afternoon for Bree, and it's late evening for me here in Scotland. But yeah, it's a pleasure to see you again. I mean, it's, uh, it's always great to be here. So thank you for inviting me. Well, I hardly slept last night and it's still dark out. That's how early it is here in Australia <laughs> here today. It, it is bright and early, but I've got my cup of tea and I'm settling down for a, a, a wonderful conversation. How are you today, Bree? I am doing well. I've, I'm caffeinated and um, I mean, it's middle of the day. So, and I've had lunch and I'm, I'm just excited to have this conversation. Um, to be honest, Alistair, I've followed you since I was kind of first starting photography. And I love what you preach about creativity and how you can use it to influence your photography or whatever creative work you do. And I just really love talking about that part. And I'm excited to have this discussion with all of us. What did we say we were going to talk about? <laughs> Great. Yeah. Getting to talk about creativity is pretty much the best thing we get to do. Um, it's, it's a wonderful thing. And, and even when we're opening our minds now, we're being creative, you know, we're, we're just forming thoughts and letting them go out there into the world. And it's, it is a creative process having us, you know, creating sentences. So yeah, I, I'm very happy to be here. So yeah, let's do this as they say. Well, um, Alistair, would you like to just introduce yourself quickly to our audience as I'm, some people mightn't have come across you um, uh, before. Sure. Um, okay. Uh, I'm Alistair Ben. I run a company called Expressive Photography. I'm Scottish and live in the far west of Scotland with my Norwegian wife, Anne-Christine. Um, together we run our company. Now, most of that is education focused. So we run workshops. I do mentoring. Uh, we have a pretty successful YouTube channel where we make content every week. I run a members forum. Uh, on our website as well, which is like a subscription model. So pretty much everything we do is geared towards uh, teaching and mentoring creativity. Um, and obviously during COVID, uh, we had to cut, well, we, we didn't do any workshops, of course. Um, so we built up the online business. And now that we're back running workshops, we've now got kind of two things running simultaneously. So it's getting kind of busy. But yeah, I mean, I've been shooting since uh, I got back into photography in the early 2000s, uh, predominantly bird photography to start off with, but very quickly uh, realized that I had a real love for the landscape and decided to get uh, or to try to become adept at it. Um, so yeah, I mean, for the last 20 20 odd years now, I've pretty much dedicated all my time to, to photography and I turned professional in about 2010. So what, 13 years ago, um, mainly by writing eBooks and then running workshops. That was kind of my path into, into a professional career as a photographer. Thank you for that. It's always so interesting to hear about pe different people's paths into 
their current creative work because it really is never a straight line, like lens, lens journey, you know, starting in, you know, art school, (laughs) you know, mine is definitely, you know, kind of a real squiggly line too. I mean, I've, I've done multiple creative things. And so it, it always really is interesting hearing about how people become who they are. And then also, I think this is, I, I I think now it's time to dive into the, our topic today. I think we had, we were saying, you know, talking about um, the combination of like creativity and business and, you know, what do you do when you get to like a crossroads and we can talk about all things. We're just going to have a combo of topics today, but I think this is a really interesting thing to start off with is what do you do when you get to like a crossroads or you feel your, um, cause I feel like I'm at the space where, when you feel your creative work changing, then what do you do? So maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Cause I'm sure Lynn, you've had this in your life too. Like, what do you do when you feel your work changing and shifting? Um, I think we shouldn't confuse running a business and being creative, um, as as being the same thing or, or even things that have to be running concurrently. I think running a business is a business and it's about providing value to our clients and trying to affect change and positivity in our clients. And whether that's face-to-face or online or through written word or video or whatever, it doesn't matter how we're interfacing with, with, with other people, as long as we believe we're adding value. Um, and, and for that value, we get paid. And, and that's the business of it. Now, the fact of the matter is that it has nothing to do with creativity. You know, you can creatively come up with ways to market or you can creatively come up with ways to get content across to to your clients. But that's not the same as going out into the landscape with a camera and playing and being inquisitive and allowing that interaction with the world to cleanse you and to teach you something about yourself and your perspectives uh, with the world. So one thing for sure, and, and if anybody is under the illusion that being a professional photographer is about being outside making photographs all day, every week, um, th- th- that is sadly not the case. Um, I was saying to Len before we started recording, I think up until December, I'd, I had more or less seven or eight months where I didn't take a single photograph. And rather than stressing about that or fighting it or trying to force myself into the landscape when I didn't really want to go in there with a camera um, because I was out there running and I was out there hiking and doing a lot of long distance running through the hills. So I was still out in nature and I was still engaging and I was still seeing and I was still feeling and I was still being emotionally affected by the landscape, which in its own right is a creative interaction. Um, So the fact that I wasn't making a photograph, the fact I wasn't making a product or a physical product there was still work being done in my brain, which was very good work to be, to be done and needed to be done. Um, because the product of our photography needn't be a photograph, (laughs) ironically. Um, so I waited until I felt motivated to make a product, um, or saw things that sparked my imagination and I think the the difficulty when you are a professional photographer is that it's very easy to be led by trends or the competitive nature of social media or other people who are running YouTube channels or other people who run courses in certain places. It's very easy to be led by that competitive spirit 
Um, and I, f- I fight it, uh, to, with, with every fiber in my body because photography is not competitive. Life shouldn't be competitive. Our relationships with ourselves shouldn't be competitive. So I, I was quite patient with it. I did lots of other things. I played lots of guitar. I mean, the, the, my room is surrounded by guitars. And when I felt, when I felt creative, I picked up a guitar and I played and I recorded music. And that's how I expressed myself was, was through my guitar playing. Um, but when I did get back into the photography side of things or the creativity side of photography, um, it was really different. You know, my relationship with my photography now is kind of, um, it's rejuvenated and is very positive. And yeah, I think, I think it's too easy to force these things and it's too easy to try and manipulate what we think we should be doing. Uh, I'm much more open to the concept of allowing my creativity to guide me down different avenues and surprise me. Uh, I think surprise is one of the most undervalued attributes of creativity. It's when you surprise yourself, I think that's the good feeling. So yeah, I, I think business is business and creativity is creativity. And if creativity is your business, then best not to try and compromise both. <laughs> I, th- I think allowing the creativity to be itself and then allowing the business to be its business is probably the best thing to do. It sounds like there that you live a, a creative life and you consider, um, you know, you mentioned running as being a, a creative act and your interaction with the landscape as being a creative act and obviously playing music is a creative act and it sounds like you live a, a creative life and photography is just one of the outlets in there. Um, would that be correct in saying that? I agree a hundred percent. And, and I think this is where some of the definitions that are used to, to describe things like creativity are very much rooted in one dimensional attributes I think creativity is it's a- true though. You're very right. Each writer does this, doesn't it? They, they, they pull it down and go, this is what the creative act is. And they define it incredibly, um, narrowly, um, to suit the way that they see the world. I find sometimes in order to be, in order to say you're creative, you have to produce something to look at, or, you know, um, that there has to be something tangible involved versus, living in a way where you like feel creative or creativity infuses your life, whether or not you're actually making or creating doesn't matter. Right. It's, it's that, it's that state of being in your mind where you don't have to be even making anything to feel that way. That's so interesting when people talk about like creative burnout and, you know, we don't have to make it like into a bad thing. I want to go back to what you said about surprise, because I love that. I love thinking about how I surprise myself. And um, there's a, I just did a presentation for a group. And one of the things I'm like, I love surprising myself. Like I'm excited. I'm always excited to surprise myself. It's one of like my core thoughts when I go out or when I do anything, I'm like, I'm excited to surprise myself here. And so one of the things that I've done recently is I, I, um, I have a full spectrum for anyone who, if you know, photography, then you might know what this is, but anyway, I have a full spectrum converted camera now with a infrared filter and that camera, 
even though it's a tangible thing, I can take that out into the world and go, it's, it's like my play toy. It allows my brain the ability to now play and experiment. And, um, and because it's, it deals with light that's not within our regular visual spectrum. When I look through the viewfinder, I'm like, oh, that's a surprise. And so every time, like almost every time I look through it, I'm like, I'm surprised here. This is so fun. It looks so different. And then I, if I'm with someone, I show someone else and they're surprised too. And it really does make, it's like a joyous experimentation out there in the world that, that we, we can either acquire something or we can change how we think about what we're doing to do that, to surprise ourselves. I love that so much. Yeah, I, 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 I agree, uh, obviously, um, a hundred percent with that. And the, the, the previous thing we were, we were on there was the, the idea that creativity is more than just creating something, um, or creative living is more than just a product. And the thing I'm kind of working on the most at the moment is understanding that relationships are really important. So, um, we all have relationships with partners and friends and colleagues and family and um, clients or work colleagues or people we go to the pub with or people we play sport with. I mean, every single relationship in our life um, is one of its, is its own little thing. And each of them are really quite different. And we also have relationships with our cameras and we also have relationships with landscapes and we also have relationships with our creativity and the output of our creativity. And we also have a relationship with ourself. And that relationship with ourself is the key creative relationship because every one of those relationships that I've discussed, we are at the hub of, we are right at the heart of the, all of those relationships. And if you affect one of those relationships, then all of the relationships change because you're changing yourself somehow. If you improve a relationship with a partner, or you improve a relationship with a friend or a work colleague, or you improve the relationship with your camera, then everything can change. So I, I'm really interested in all of these different relationships. And what I realize is that if I'm out running and feeling strong and I'm making creative decisions on a trail, you know, running along a trail and it's rocky and tree roots and rough or downhill or steep or whatever, you're making thousands of little micro adjustments the whole time. And I feel good about that. And it definitely makes me feel better about myself. And it definitely makes me feel better about everything. So I think a creative life is a very much a state of mind and an attitude. Um, and that definitely helps you in terms of your creativity, because when you're creative, you have to believe in it. You know, you can be surprised, but then it's like, okay, well, is this cool enough to show somebody else? Are they going to be surprised or is this worth sharing? Because that's all the product is, is something that we think is worth showing somebody else. There's an incredible amount of health benefits to creativity, isn't there? That we, we gain so much of it. And I'm sure this is one of the reasons why all three of us here are so addicted to the creative act, to living a creative life is that we, we continue to grow. And uh, it, as you say, it's a relationship. And uh, like many, you heal one and you heal all the others at the same time, or you change them and shift them or improve them by concentrating on, on, on different bits of it. And I, my relationship to my art and to the creative act is uh, one of growth 
and one that has continually changed throughout my life. And I, I've said this a few different times, but I, I, I keep trying to qualify myself when I say that. But creativity seems to be the greatest teacher or um, art seems to be my greatest teacher in life. And I, the reason I qualify it, because I often think nature is the greatest teacher of all. Um, but for me personally, I learn so much more in this stage of my life through making art and interacting with it and talking to it and listening to it and letting it guide me and uh, surprise me and take me on these journeys, that it's become my healing tool. And uh, it makes me who I am today as uh, such a, a, you know, a sensitive, interesting, um, well, this is me talking about myself, <laughs> but um, not anyone else can judge me on these things, but that keep me engaged and, and going in the world and keep producing and plodding on each day and, uh, um, well, not actually plodding on, but getting up and going, right, this is what's going to happen and um, I'm going to get out and do some of this stuff and uh, keep keep going with this because it's, it is so intrinsically rewarding. And, and I, I say this pointedly because I think people early on in their journey really struggle with this because it's um, uh, quite a brick wall that they get up against and they don't feel that it's such a, a rewarding, growthful thing um, in those early stages. I think it's a very intimidating concept. I think it's a hugely intimidating, you know, find your creativity. Um, it's, I, th I think the words creativity and enlightenment should be synonymous. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, it, it, the, oh, the, I love that one. You know, striving, <laughs> st striving for enlightenment is the antithesis of enlightenment, and striving for creativity is the antithesis of creativity. You can't strive for enlightenment and you can't strive for creativity. And, um, I mean, obviously, I, I mean, Len knows, I mean, I, I, I lived in Tibet for seven years and, and that kind of stuff rubs off on you. Um, and it's a very strong part of, of who I am and it's a very important part of who I am. So, you know, a lot of those philosophies and psychologies are, are, are pretty heavily embedded in me, but this is where the parallels lie. You know, we use language, you know, I'm trying to use language with regards to creativity that's not in the general lexicon of creative language because it comes with baggage. You know, we've been hearing these words and these mantras and these statements for 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years or more. And people are tired of it. People still don't understand what the people meant with it or it's become so meaningless as a statement. Um, you know, as if you can find your creativity by following a bunch of rules, for example. Um, you know, it, it's just, it's so oxymoronic. It just doesn't make any sense that, oh, you can be creative by doing this. <laughs> that That's not how it works. And I think the thing that Len was just saying there, which really resonated me, with me, was when he was talking about the the healing nature of creativity and the the purpose that it gives his life. and one of the things I really feel about it is that when we create something, it is an externalization of a perspective that it's a perspective that we have locked in our head that doesn't exist until it is, that has manifest itself in some kind of composition or, or creative artistic statement. Um, and when you do that, the reason it's so powerful to you is that you can see these things out in front of you, either in an aesthetic or in a musical arrangement or in a, um, 
in dance or or whatever, these externalizations of feelings and emotions. And once you see it in front of you, you suddenly have a different perspective on it. And what it allows, and, you know, I know where we might mention my book later on, but the whole purpose of that was for me to understand my inner landscape and the diversity of that inner landscape. And the, the, the impact it had on my life was, was incredibly profound, you know, from being medicated for anxiety and depression six years ago or seven years ago to now being pretty balanced, you know, I mean, I, I'm a pretty easygoing guy, but I, I haven't been on medication for seven or eight years now, six, seven years. And, and that is, that's life-changing for someone who's lived under a shadow of anxiety. It's a powerful, powerful thing that we can do in our lives. Um, and to wrap it up in mundane language and make it somehow ordinary, um, seems a disservice to anybody who, who could be doing things better um, just because they didn't know that they could do things easier or better. Mm. How many people have we met that say that they're not creative and yet, uh, the creative act is, is universal as a, as a learning language, as a way that we've, we've got to where we are. Uh, it's, it's in, not endemic, but it's a part of who we are, isn't it? Well, creativity is anti-establishment also. It, it's, it's the celebration of individualism and that's not what society wants. You know, society wants homogeny because it's far easier to manage homogeny than it is to manage a bunch of anarchic creatives. <laughs> so I, 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 I personally, <laughs> I, I personally think that society wants to homogenize more than it wants us to be free it's kind of our tendency, right? Because part of us wants to belong to this like community where people think the same way as us, but also that will never exactly happen because we all have such individual perspectives and it's totally up to us to be able to express those things in a way that, um, that feels authentic to us versus, letting out, letting the outside world dictate what we should be saying, what, you know, <laughs> and I, I mean, we, we see this, all, you know, all over the world, but I love this. I love this discussion because this is making me think about even my own, my own part of it, which is my own piece of my own creative journey. And I've grown back to relationships. I've grown in my own personal relationship with myself. It, like an exponential growth just by doing my own, uh, this, this creative work, but it's, it, it's, it's interesting. And I, I find it also difficult to put it into language because there are, because I'm a, not as eloquent with words, but B uh, it's almost indescribable, the connection between my creative work and who I am continuously becoming and how I am continuously changing as, as I do more and more and more. And I've discovered so much about myself, like uh, what I'm capable of, like emotionally expanding my, um, my view of the world and other people and my relationships to all of that. And it's been very fascinating. And I have, really struggled to put 
those into some kind of language, which is maybe why when I look at my own photographs or when I look at what I have created, I put a lot more meaning into it because of that relationship and change and growth. And maybe that's why we are so um, tied to what we create. Like it becomes like just a piece of us. (laughs) And so once we put it out into the world, though, it's It's a little difficult to separate ourselves sometimes, but I truly have grown in my personal relationship with myself. And that in turn has affected all the rest of, of everything else I do. I find it ironic that we're, we're, we're talking about this in a podcast full of words and (laughs) as visual creatives. And I think that we've actually done that on purpose as a way of separating out the art and not getting confused so we can work on the words because uh, sorting out the language and understanding it uh, intellectually is part of the journey, isn't it? Like we have to, we have to figure out how to do it physically and emotionally. But then, part of us, by explaining it, exploring it, talking about it to others, uh, we actually solve it and make it more clearer for ourselves in our own mind. So that uh, as we unpack it and talk about it and find words for it and challenge those words and ideas, it actually becomes easier because we have it much, much clearer in our mind as to what we're doing. And it's it's been a benefit, and all three of us understand this, that as a teacher, by taking a creative act and then trying to encourage other people to, to do it and, and be involved and to engage in it, our personal improvement in this process just skyrockets because uh, we're in this intellectual understanding of what's going on and trying to get our heads around it. Such a, <laughs> I find that fascinating. I think that's particularly true that I spend a huge amount of my time thinking about, <laughs> this is going to sound horribly egocentric. I spend a lot of time thinking about myself, um, but only from a work in progress perspective, you know, just like why did I point my camera at that? What was it about that thing that made me want to point my camera at it instead of something that was 10 feet to the left of it? Now, that question led me down an incredible rabbit hole of not just discovering the landscape in a completely different way, but discovering my relationship with the landscape in a different way. And I want to skip back a, a, a few heartbeats because one of the things Bree said there was the the importance of us expressing ourselves creatively and people seeking for their creativity. And I think it's really important for us to attest to the fact that social media is very negative for people who are striving for to find their creativity or trying to express themselves creatively. Because as soon as you bring popularity into the equation, you're starting to instantly compare yourself with other people who are more popular. And that is poison for creativity. That is cancer for creativity. Nothing good will come of that. And I think this is the biggest struggle that we as educators have is to, is to help anybody who we're in contact with uh, through our influence or uh, circles of influence to, to just say, well, you know, is the popularity important, but this is it, you know, and Bree said, you know, we're part of a society, we're part of a big peer group, we're part of a big organism that's many, many, many tens of, or hundreds of thousands of people all going out making photographs. 
And it can be very, very difficult to say, this is me when it looks nothing like anybody else's photographs. You know, if you're out there doing something completely wild and completely new and completely different, there's that fear, there's that peer pressure to, to fit in with the group. And that's something we all experience throughout our lives. You know, we, we come out of our mother's fresh and clean and, and ready to take on the world with, with these incredible little personalities wrapped up in a very juvenile form. We get sent off to kindergarten and then you go to school and then all of a sudden you realize that you can't just do what you want. You've got to follow all these rules and fit into society and fit in with the class. And that just progresses through our lives. So at every step of the way, our creativity is being chiseled away from us. And what is left is a very functional veneer in most cases of this is the person who is going to walk through this world with the least resistance that's, that's going to be able to fit in the various places. And being a wacky creative is not the easiest path, you know? So I think it's a very difficult thing that as we become conditioned to compromise our creativity and this is why most people are searching for their creativity because they lost it probably 30 or 40 years ago when they were told that they have to draw within the lines or you can't have a pink sky or you can't have a, a, a green sister <laughs> you know, when, <laughs> or whatever it may be. You know, so I, I, I just think um, one of the key components, it's like, a, it's like that Monty Python movie, what have the Romans ever done for us? What, you know, what's creativity done for us? Well, surprise is one. Um, and, um, playfulness is another, and the list will continue. <laughs> Very much so. And social media really creates mediocrity, doesn't it? And, uh, we end up aggregating likes and the, the whole algorithms just promote me, uh, a mediocre work. And you, you, you're totally right that the interesting, the really, really interesting work doesn't surface on there. And Len knows I actually really love social media. <laughs> but here's, I, I have in one of my workshops, I teach actually not just about social media, but our relationships with other people. And it, it's, I think initially social media feels that way. We've got all our likes and we, you know, it's feels homogenous. There's comparison. And for sure, I, I think that's a generally correct statement. But I also think if we can switch our mindsets to or how we think about what we're seeing and how we're interacting with people, like I have totally shifted how I think about it. I use social media to put out my own work and express myself, but also I use it to build relationships with other people and find work that's really inspiring. Like I love saving things and collections and going on and you know, collections that I have and find ways to get inspired. And, um, I have, I've had some wonderful conversations with people. So I don't necessarily think that social media is all bad, but back to what you were saying, Alistair, it's the comparison part. Like, you know, when we are telling ourselves that either two things, either my work, is not good enough? Or I'm better than someone else? Both of those things I think you're right. That is poison for our own work because all of a sudden we're introducing someone else's work into our own creative work. And we don't need that to really be making the authentic work that means a lot to us. 
And so I think that's why a lot of people decide that they don't want to look at other people's stuff because they are in the habit of comparing themselves in, you know, either way. And if we can somehow separate ourselves and this can take a lot of work, but it it's so worthwhile to me now to have done that work for myself because I can go online now and go, I love their work. And also I'm doing my work here and I don't really care what someone else is doing. Like, I don't care what, if I put out something that looks really odd now, it doesn't matter to me because the likes are just numbers, you know? <laughs> so, um, and so that to me is like the space that I want to be in where I want to be able to create the authentic worth that I want to. And I, I love that we're all telling you, the audience, to go find out how you can create the authentic work that means a lot to you. What is your creative intuition telling you to do? Not the influence are, you know, not being influenced by other people and all this other stuff that our society is telling you to be influenced by. I, I want to ask Alistair a question right now about um, what Bree's just talking about. And that's about um, how do you listen to your intuition and, and uh, what does that actually look like to you, Alistair? Because uh, you're our guest and uh, I'm really fascinated by this journey of discovering ourselves and uh, our art. And I, I know you you believe in this and I'm interested in the practical side and the yeah. uh, of what does it actually feel like listening to yourself? I think that's a really curious question. Um, in, in, intuition's a word that, again, I, th- I think this is one of the issues is that some words come with baggage and, and intuition is one of the words that really comes with baggage. You know, what really is intuition? Is it a set of learned things that have just become subconscious, um, in which case our intuition might lead us down very predictable routes, um, you know, composing things in a somewhat formulaic way, you could say you do it intuitively and it's just because you, you don't have to think about it anymore. So I think intuition is very different from unlearned or spontaneous creativity. I think they are very, very different things. I think I can go into the landscape and just because I've been doing it for 20 plus years, I can go and find something that will make an okay photo, you know, without too much difficulty. Um, and, and that's not an arrogant kind of, Hey, I'm such a great photographer. It's just, you know, you know, you, you give a musician a guitar and they're going to pick it up and play it, you know, even if they haven't played that guitar before. So I would say that 80% or more of my intuitive creativity comes when I'm not actually with a camera in my hand. Um, I, I, th- I think it comes when I'm doing something else. It's a, an idea or a concept or a, a phrase you know, there's little phrases come into my mind, for example, when I'm running, you know, a a metaphor for something that I'm feeling and I'll find a phrase and that somehow becomes like a bedrock. So it's like out of darkness, for example, was, was a a phrase that came to my mind uh, about five years ago when I realized that I was emerging out of this really heavy period of my life. And that became a concept and that became ways for me to start joining dots between invisible points. And I think that is more my kind of understanding of what my intuitive relationship with creativity is. It's 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 creating something out of thin air that is very new. 
you know, and whether that's just new to me or, you know, I obviously I haven't seen every photograph in every world in, in the world made by every photographer. So there may be other people out there doing the same thing, but I haven't seen it. So I just think it's really important to listen to those little spill words that come into your brain. Um, you know, a little phrase or, or it's like when you're, when you're a musician, a little melody might come into your head and that becomes a seed, which can become a, a symphony. So I just think that I, I mean, I go out and make photos now most weeks. I was out a couple of days this week making images for videos for, for YouTube. And I knew when I was looking to make a photograph because I was there and it was like, okay, I've got to find something to make a video about. And then there was other photographs. It was just like, wow, that's really cool. And, you know, finding something in a landscape, especially in anonymous landscapes or, or landscapes that aren't like popular places to go. Um, when you find something that just really excites you and captures your imagination and you're glued to the viewfinder and you're just looking through it, just wowing yourself with just this really cool combination of elements. I think that's the kind of little moments that, that I, you know, if I was having an out of body experience, I would look down on that and say, yeah, that's optimal. You know, that, that's the kind of optimal experience of, of just being in a landscape, really feeling it, really just being there, not thinking about anything else. Um, and I think if you're thinking about anything else, when you're out, you're not there, you know, so I, I really try not to be thinking about, you know, world news or, um, all the horror things that are going on all over the place or, you know, anything that's on my mind. Um, I, I try to not think, uh, <laughs> instead of mindfulness, I've developed the concept of mindlessness, um, and, mindlessness is my state of being in the landscape is mindlessness. <laughs> how do, how do these words and little phrases fit into this mindlessness, Alistair? Well, when you're mindful, you are aware of sensations and thoughts and you try to disassociate yourself with having an effect or, or re receiving an impact from them you know, when you're mindful and you're walking into the supermarket and someone grabs the trolley from in front of you and, you know, and, or the cart to go into the supermarket and you feel yourself getting angry about that, then mindfulness is realizing that the anger is not going to have a positive outcome. Whereas mindlessness is no thought. It's, it's more like an empty mind state. You're not thinking. So when something does come into your mind, it's not the product of conscious thought. It's the product of, of just spontaneous awakening, as it were. That, that this is sounding kind of zen. It's, it's harder. <laughs> it's harder to be distracted when you're in mindlessness, I think, because things don't, things don't influence you and bother you. And that, that's kind of my feeling about it. I, well, I was interested when you were talking about intuition, I think it's maybe the, the word isn't intuition, but what you were describing is a feeling it's all emotion based, like, because uh, our emotions are, it, this is to me what I, I'm just observing. <laughs> um, and I observe this in myself too, that, that when, when we're led to do something, we don't have to be thinking about things, but it's an emotion. Like you said, Wow. And that to me is like a more powerful emotion that 
causes me to act. And, and I love being led by whatever emotion comes over me. And if I'm allowing myself the space to create, to, to be able to just be led by the emotion to wherever it is I need to go. So that's kind of what I'm observing. What do you think about that comparison? I, 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 I'm a very emotional person, you know, and I, I believe that art, all art is emotional. Um, and I think that there are attributes to emotions that can be married to aesthetics. You know, we, we, we understand the emotional resonance of music, uh, the words of a song, you know, how many times have we cried listening to, to music and even music without words. If someone can make you cry by playing a piece of music that has no words and they're just using the resonance to, to affect your, your emotions, that's incredibly powerful. Now, I believe we, most people have a fairly healthy relationship with music. They have things they like, they understand like, they understand, oh, I don't like that. They understand genres and styles. They understand instruments being different. But I believe there's a complete parallel between that and aesthetics. So they they work in slightly different ways, but there are attributes of certain aesthetics that are going to make you feel this or make you feel that. And they are just inherently in the landscape. You know, we've all witnessed fog rolling over a, a, a landscape and the diffusion of that and the obscuring of that and the mystery of that and the feel and the luminosity of it and the way it's lit and the movement and the kind of sensual, sinu- sinuous uh, aspect of fog. So all of these things have emotional attributes and they are the things that we resonate with. So intuition for me is a perception of, of feel. I think feel is significantly more important than see. I I do see visual relationships and I, I I wouldn't say that I find compositions. I would say I see visual relationships or I feel visual relationships and those visual relationships have attributes that somehow resonate with a certain emotional spectrum that I'm in. And this is why creativity is such a positive thing for us to have in our lives, you know, because what are the aesthetics of fear? What are the the aesthetics of being scared? What are the aesthetics of anger or rage or passion or love or um, euphoria or calmness or tranquility? You know, and this is the, this is the aesthetic spectrum that we have at our disposal. And if you consider the midtones of your histogram to be the the fulcrum of your emotion, then where those midtones are placed changes the whole feel of the image. You drag the midtones to the left, the image gets darker, more mysterious. You drag the midtones to the right, and the image gets brighter and more emotionally uplifting. There's a complete emotional spectrum wrapped up in histograms, and these attributes. And this is pretty much what I teach. I mean, that th- this is my lexicon uh, of teaching is this emotional spectrum and understanding that how we feel when we see something that we create needn't necessarily be the way that someone else will feel when they see it because we don't know their emotional spectrum <laughs> and and this is the difficulty of of really intentional m- manipulation of another person's emotions you you could say I really love this. So let's say I pick up a guitar and just crank it up with tons of distortion and tons of effects and crank out a massive chord. 
you know, a bunch of kids might really love it because it's angry and aggressive. But my mom is just going to say, that's just noise. I do not like that. So the, there isn't that kind of guaranteed response. And this is how we end up with trends. And this is how we end up with kind of thematic styles that people tend to make images in because they're kind of universally agreed upon as being okay. Um, whereas I just think there's a bigger spectrum than that. I think all our moms would say it's noise. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> right. I, I'm so curious about this. Uh, I have this theory and I think we've talked about it before you and I, Len, and I've heard other people mention it that I think sometimes we create work and we don't quite know how it, what it means to us, um, if it means anything even, uh, or how, or how it changes us or what our relationship to it is. I think there's, we've got a lag, like internally, we, there's something that we feel emotionally guided to create. And then if there is something to some sense to be made of it, I think there's always like a time lag, six months, a year, two years, five years, whatever it is, because sometimes I find myself going, why did I make that? And then I know two years later I go, Oh, now I'm putting the pieces together. So I'm wondering, Alistair, what your experience with this, is that kind of what your book is about? Like, tell us more about this idea, if you agree with this or not. Um, Yes, I agree with that. I think the problem with creating with a plan in your head, so sitting with a raw file, for example, and having a plan, is you can only take the photograph in the direction that you can imagine. So that's one outcome. Mm -hmm. That's one possible outcome. Let's say, just for argument's sake, that there are, oh, let's let's have a small number, an infinite number of potential outcomes. <laughs> okay. So you're 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 basically throwing away infinity minus one of all possible outcomes of an image by by having a plan. Um so I I kind of like that idea of spontaneous creativity. Um, and I, that's where I think you can, you can take images and directions that you surprise yourself with, or, or perhaps, uh, and that can happen with a camera in your hand as well. When you're out in the landscape, if you, if you only go there with a plan of making that image and then you, you, you make that image and then leave, then that's all you could ever do. And you've just abandoned an infinite number of other possibilities. Um, now I think that when we are in those, uh, creative states, then if we end up with an outcome that's kind of puzzling to us or we don't quite understand it, I have a statement for that, which I've, because obviously I've thought about it, which is our subconscious was speaking a language that we're not ready to understand yet, or we, we, we don't understand yet. And it takes time for a certain amount of growth to happen, I think, before we can truly understand what we were trying to say or what we we're trying to feel. Um, and I think this happens an awful lot of the time. Um, you know, I, I know that societies and cultures around the world all have different relationships uh, with men and women and what, what roles men and women. Um, and that's obviously expanding now into transgender um, and other communities, you know, but there's a kind of societal expectation. You grew up in Glasgow you know, you're going to be stoic and you're not going to talk about your feelings. And, you know, if someone looks at your girlfriend, you're going to punch them in the face. And, you know, that this is what's expected of you. Um, and obviously that that's a very narrow emotional spectrum. <laughs> you know, it's, it's basically 
you know, don't talk about your feelings, don't show affection and get angry at any potential threat. Uh, and that's, that's pretty brutal, you know, when, when you're a sensitive, thoughtful person. I think what's important for all people moving forward is that even if you can't say those words, I mean, I know people who can't say, I love you. They just can't. They, they, they really, really struggle to say it to anybody. And if you can put that emotion into a photograph and express that emotion in a photograph, then that is a very, very solid step on the road to at least accepting that you can feel those emotions. You might not say them yet, but you're set, you're set, setting off in that right direction. So yeah, I, I, I think there's lots of people out there who make images that are confusing to them because they're expressing emotions that they've suppressed or have been repressed or they've had them beaten out of them in abusive relationships. They've had them beaten out of them by their parents or peers or bullies at school. And expressing those emotions has become taboo to them. So I think many times we can express things through our photographs or our other art, be it poetry or uh, music or anything we want to do creatively that we aren't ready to listen to yet. <laughs> and, and, you know, the book, the book is a kind of an evolution of that to a certain extent. It's really interesting that sensitivity is something that crosses all three of us, isn't it? That it's a, that we are all sensitive, quite sensitive people. And that's a, one of the driving forces that, pushes us towards creativity as a way of expressing that sensitivity out to the world. I think it's hugely important. I've become more sensitive and emotional since really diving into my creative work. There's a huge connection to it, being able to truly like express myself, but also put it out into the world and say, this is me. I'm vulnerable. What Think whatever you want about it. <laughs> the, the thing about that, Brie, is that when we do that, you know, I, I remember I watch a bunch of climbing movies. I was a mad climber when I was a kid and I still really enjoy watching climbing movies, you know, Alex Honnold free soloing El Cap and, you know, Tommy Caldwell and all these really cool climbers. <laughs> yes. you know, so, I mean, I, That's a great film, isn't it? <laughs> it's just the madness, that, the, the madness that all these kids get up to these days. But I remember watching one about uh, a woman who was growing up as a climber and she was gay, but she didn't know she, well, she knew she was gay, but she wasn't prepared to talk about being gay and she wasn't prepared to, to, to be out. And eventually in her late twenties, she did come out because she realized that by doing so, she was a role model for hundreds of thousands of kids around the world who didn't have role models who they could look up to, you know, people in society doing things. And in a, in a similar way, I think sensitive people who are creatives are taking a stand for all the quiet, sensitive people who were bullied at school or who had horrible things happen to them in their lives or suffered very, very difficult periods of their life through either mental health or other illness or, or whatever, you know, you're, 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 you become a torch, you know, for hundreds of thousands of people around the world who suffer these things quietly and, and stoically. And I think it's really important, you know, because as soon as one of us says something like this, you know, like I, you know, in, in the book and so forth, talking about mental health, talking about depression, talking about panic attacks, talking about suicidal thoughts, all of these types of things. As soon as you do that and people look at you and think, well, you seem kind of normal, but you obviously did all these things or felt all these things or suffered all these things. 
maybe I can get out of that. Maybe I can do something about my current situation. And I think they're really important. You know, I, I think art has an incredibly hugely valuable role in society and that's why it shouldn't be controlled and that's why it shouldn't be suppressed and that's why it shouldn't be packaged up nice and tidy and sold for a buck. <laughs> I, I could very easily get into ranting mode. <laughs> the anarcha- anar- anarchistic artists yeah. unite <laughs> and uh, let's take over the world. <laughs> but then, you know, then that, that, would, be, that so. would be just as bad though. <laughs> that, that, that's the battle of heart and mind. Of course. Yeah, we <laughs> need balance. We'd, we'd all, we'd, the, as, soon as, when, as soon as winter came, we'd all starve. oh my gosh oh this is so good well alistair since we've mentioned the book aka teased our audience (laughs) quite a few times what why don't you take this opportunity to tell us about the book and then tell me why you picked a red cover because i told len i was going to ask you this (laughs) right okay um Okay, so I'm in the process, of, as this is being recorded, of packing and shipping a bunch of books out around the world. And it feels really great to be finally at this point. The concept started in January 2017, um, and I was in the Gobi Desert uh, for the first time out of seven various trips I went out there. And by the end of 2016, I was really ill. I mean, I was living in the west of Scotland, and I was sick. I was really sick in my head. I was crushed with anxiety. I was falling apart, really mentally falling apart. And I'd been holding myself together for kind of 25 to 30 years by this point of constant depression and anxiety behind the veneer of being a really nice, easygoing, funny guy. And and that's the classic dichotomy of the whole situation is uh, externally, I was always a very easygoing, popular kind of person, but I was dying inside really. So by the end of 2016, my whole relationship with my photography was, was sour. I was, I was reasonably accomplished. I was recognized as being a competent photographer. Um, you know, I'd done the whole winning a few competitions and and that type of thing and, and was already running workshops and selling them out and, you know, had a, a reasonable business, but I didn't feel authentic. I felt like I was living a lie in many ways because the veneer of my photography was not me. It just didn't feel authentic at all. So anyway, we went off into the Gobi Desert in January 2017, and I really had a very conscious period of surrender, you know, just looking at the landscape and just feeling so overwhelmed and so small and so vulnerable. So I just thought, right, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to try and make photographs here. I'm just going to look and feel. And it was very, it was, it was the classic kind of um, cliched epiphany. So I just started noticing things and thought, right, I'm just going to not think. I'm just going to, if I see something cool, I'm going to point my camera at it. And I did this in the January and it started to piece together a concept that there was things that somehow the things I was pointing my camera at were, were a mirror into my mind, you know, that some days they'd be really angular and sharp and jagged and very high contrast. And then on other days they'd be very, or different times of the day they'd be very sensual and, and sort of sinuous and curvy and gentle and calm and high key. So I, I realized that this is where the emotional spectrum of aesthetics lies, is that you can have images that 
feel jagged and dissonant. And then you can have images that feel calming and soothing. So over the next three years, um, 17, 18, 19, I, w- I went back to the Gobi another six times, uh, sometimes with clients and, and uh, mostly with clients. And at the end of 2018, I changed profoundly. I, I walked out a door and walked in through another door um, and there was a different person on the other side of that door. And my wife now, my, my, my Norwegian wife, Anne, really loved the images that I was making. So I, I started to piece them together in a kind of spectrum from really dark right through this kind of transitional zone of, of colliding emotions right through to this other spectrum of very high key images. So I kind of found I had a collection of images that kind of really represented my entire emotional spectrum. And she's been an avid collector of photo books for decades. And and I think in the house now we've got three or 400 photo books, you know, we've got a lot. And she really wanted me to write a book. You know, she just thought this was a story that should be told and she felt the images should be out there in print. So, well, during COVID, I was too busy, you know, trying to survive, you know, for not running workshops. So it kind of got shelved until 21, um, early 21. And I've got a really good buddy, uh, Bruce Percy, who is another Scottish photographer. And he, he makes beautiful books, really, really beautiful books. So I asked Bruce uh, who he used uh, for his books. So I, I got hooked up with this guy, Darren, who is down in England. And him and I start uh, throwing some ideas around. And he has a very good relationship with the printer in Italy, uh, Trento, because um, he's done a bunch of books with, with Bruce. So I put the images together. I wrote all the text and then got Joe Cornish to write one of the forewords and then William Neal to write the other foreword. Uh, so there's, there's two forewords and then a bunch of essays by me pretty much telling the, the story of uh, my life, I guess. So it's kind of very autobiographical. So it's quite a wordy book for a photo book. And yeah, I'm very proud of it. You know, when it, when it finally arrived and we had it in our hand, it was, it was really, it was, it was a really, really great feeling because the, the book from, from a perfectionist point of view, the quality of the book exceeded my expectations, which I was really happy with. But we have thrown everything at this book in terms of in any shape or form, how we could spend money to make it better, <laughs> we did it. So the the red that you're talking about is the slipcase of the deluxe and the collector's editions. Mm. The actual book has black cloth, mm. uh, so the, the the standard edition has black cloth with a with a with a recessed photograph on the cover with red with red end papers. So you do have this black and red, just because black and red is so impactful. You know, it's, it's a really powerful combination. It, it, it's a, it's a book that just says, this is going to be a heavy ride. Open me. And stay a while. Cause it's going to take. <laughs> well, people have been on at me for years and years to do a book. And, and I didn't want to do a book that was just a collection of pretty photographs of a place or, or just a collection of random photographs from my travels around the world it didn't really seem valid or important to me to do that. Um, and I really felt with this, that it's more than just a photo book. I, I, I do believe that the content has emotional value to, to anybody who has uh, suffered mental health issues or 
is looking to try and find a deeper and more emotional relationship with the landscape that will nurture and uh, allow their creativity to blossom. Because that is the root of aesthetics is emotion, as we discussed a little while ago. So yeah, the, the book is still available. We, we ended up getting a thousand printed uh, just because the economics of producing books is the more you print, the cheaper the book is to produce. Uh, we spent an absolute ton of money on this book. And the prices went up, I think, by about 35% just last year because of the war in Ukraine. And um, there was a global shortage of fine art paper because people who make fine art paper are now making boxes to send aid to Ukraine. So there's all sorts of weird little consequences rippling around the world as well. So yeah, it's been a I now know what the word labor of love really means. <laughs> it, it, it is a major, major job. And my wife, my beautiful wife is so, I mean, it's, every Christmas she wraps the presents and she is a master. You know, she just turns out these little perfect Christmas presents with perfect folds and perfect tape and little ribbons and bows. And basically every book that's getting shipped out is getting that treatment. So it's getting wrapped and then boxed and then bagged. So it's, it's, um, and then there's prints with different editions. So there's a standard edition and then there's a deluxe edition with, which comes with a choice of uh, one of three prints. And then there's a collector's edition, which is this kind of insane thing, which is the, the, the book, five prints, um, another booklet, which is hand sewn, um, which is all about the Gobi and the experience of being in the Gobi. Um, and then there's uh, a USB stick, a little out of darkness USB stick, which contains me narrating the book and um, a 25 minute piece of music that I've composed to go along with the images. So it, it's a major thing. And the box, the box. <laughs> so it, it's, uh, it, it's been, we could have made it a lot easier for ourselves, but we decided that if I'm going to do it, I might only do it once. I don't know. Um, my wife has said about a dozen times over the last week, never again, but, um, <laughs> she's it's, done wrapping. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like having kids after the first, you say never again. And then, you know, you <laughs> and then you have three more like me. <laughs> ah, well, because <laughs> I have congratulations. So, oh my God. I, it's a little crazy. I know it's a little crazy over here, but it's okay. I, I think you, I think you said it correctly. This is a labor of love. And I think so much of what we do when we are really passionate about our work, which is what this podcast is about, right? <laughs> because the affair isn't with me and Len, the affair is with our art. It's what we're passionate about. Right. And so that's the affair is why. Oh, I missed all that. I, <laughs> yeah. That's news to Len. Sorry, Len. <laughs> <laughs> I'm heartbroken. Ah, it's such a play on words. It's all of it. Well, it's all of it. I, I, but I'm it, under here. Know, and I, I'm, on, it, I'm on here under false, false, false pretenses. But I, I think what you said is correct. This is a labor of love, and so much of what we do is this is wrapped all up in our emotions and and why we do the work that we do. And I think this understanding more about creativity helps us understand more about ourselves and helps us 
do the creative work that we, I, it's all, obviously I'm not good at explaining it because words don't, we can't put into words what we're really feeling about our work. It's, it's really quite undescribable, you know, and, and um, I'm really excited for your book, Alistair, because I feel like it's, it's a, such an opus magnum of what you have done in, with your work in your life, just not, you know, from that time that you went to Gobi and then understanding yourself and then really changing who you were and understanding yourself better. And I think this is what we're talking about today. So it's really beautiful. So excited for you. you. Yeah. And, 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 and we're excited too. And, and literally the first ones are being received today, uh, actually. Um, so it's going to be nice to sort of see what other people think and so forth. And, um, yeah, you know, I'm a very relaxed guy these days and even my guitar playing's changed, you know, it's so much has changed in my life. And, um, if someone had said to me six years ago, seven years ago, that I'd be where I am today doing what I'm doing and thinking the things that I'm thinking and having a relationship with myself that is wholesome and positive and, uh, calm, then I would have said no way. You know, I, I, I used to have a panic attack if I left the house without a beta blocker in my pocket, you know, so mm. you know, that, that is just inconceivable to me or it would have been inconceivable to me. So, um, I, I think this is where the whole relationship thing comes in and, uh, photography and any other form of creative arts are a catalyst and we use that catalyst or we can use that catalyst to affect change. Um, and that's what life is really, it's growth and maturity and well, not maturity. I'm a, I'm a 56 year old child. <laughs> um, but, um, we, we don't even know what that is here. <laughs> emotional maturity, <laughs> emotional maturity. There you go. Yes. hundred percent. Um, and, and I, I, I think, yeah, you know, and just trying to be a better person and trying to help other people to be better people, you know, and I, and I think, you know, we might not be curing cancer, but we're, we're saving lives at the same time. You know, it, it's, it's a profoundly important work. And this is why the whole triviality of, uh, some of the relationships that we have with people who don't appreciate what we do or decide to troll you on social media or whatever, it's, it's a shame, you know, it, it I think it's unfortunate when that happens. Um, I'm very grateful that I don't get very much of it, but when I do, I, I you know, it bugs me. Because you just think, well, you're not listening. <laughs> you're, you're, you don't understand what I'm trying to achieve here. So yeah, I'm, it's always an honor to have a chat with, with, with other people about these things. Cause you know, it's very easy. I think when you're creative to think you live in a vacuum, you know, and, and that you're just out there on yourself thinking these things and, and having these thoughts and trying to work it all out for yourself. And, you know, as Len and I have had many conversations over the last few years, it's, it's always nice to, to hear somebody else say something that you just think, yeah, that's exactly it. You know, I, I just think that's such a cool thing. It's so. such a beautiful story and metaphor about how art heals. And uh, I really love that way of thinking about it. And uh, it does. And it's something that it takes a long while to unpack. And, you know, Bree was talking about a couple of years to understand our art. And here you're talking about a lifetime to understand yourself and the the creative act, a creative life and the creative art has actually taught you to get to this um, incredibly calm and beautiful space. And for people that are interested in um, 
you know, early on in their, is it careers? I don't know if that's the right word, but in, in their journey, or maybe that's a, the, the wrong metaphor as well, but early on, it, it feels like quite a brick wall sometimes. Yeah, with the relationship with your art, this brick wall, and it's worth pushing through. And it's worth keep going and it's trying to find ways around it and to work with it or to even stay on this side of it and to find yourself and to find uh, how art can actually heal you and, and take you and become such an incredible thing. And I, I, there's so many things that we've talked about today that I really feel in harmony with, which are, are really beautiful, living a creative life. Uh, using it to heal myself, using it to understand and educate who I am. And, uh, you know, your book is a, a beautiful metaphor of uh, um, a signpost along the way. Like this is a, a particular spot that you've now passing through and uh, it's such an exciting one. And I'm, I can't wait to get my copy and I hope it Thank gets you. in the post soon. <laughs> and, uh, um uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, immersing myself in there. And it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today, Alistair. Yes. Well, thank, thank you very much for inviting me. I, um, I'm, I'm very much honoured and I hope my particular brand of slightly off-centre <laughs> opinion and, and thoughts is, uh, is okay. <laughs> I don't think it's as off-centre as you imagine, but anyway. Um. I think it doesn't matter whether it's okay or not as long as you like it. That's, 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 that's right. true enough. That's true enough. That, that, that just shows how dangerous peer pressure is, eh? Well, I think it's, I think it's time. I think our, our conversation has come to its natural conclusion. So thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Thank you, Alistair, for spending your evening with us. Len, thanks for waking up so early. <laughs> uh, I went through the beautiful colors of sunrise as I'm sitting here and my, my studio was bathed in oranges for a while and I was mentally sidetracked in the beautiful light for a moment. <laughs> I could hear the rainbow lorikeets outside your window. Ah, uh, yes, yes. Beautiful things that they are. Well, thank you, everyone. And um, we will have, if you're interested in Alistair's book, we will put links to all his things, his website, YouTube channel, and um, where you can get your hands on a copy of that book in the show notes. And until next time, we'll say goodbye. Bye, everyone. Bye, y'all. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye, y'all. Thank you for joining us in our creative affair. If you love the passion we bring to this creative content, please support the podcast by sharing with a friend, subscribing, and leaving us a review. Thanks. If you'd like to learn more about creative photography, visit lenmetcalf.com, where you can find links to Len's photography school, videos, and publications. He would love to invite you to sign up to his newsletter. To find out more about my work, including my photography and mentoring in my Creative Confidence group coaching program, visit creativemindscoach.com. See you next time.